today. It's Philippians 1, starting in verse, uh, verse 18 through 26. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that would be better for me. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, uh, with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, uh, I think this last year, uh, I was reading, uh, reading some articles that came uh, about uh, Senator McCain, John McCain. Uh, I think it was kind of around the time of his, his death. Uh, a lot of articles, you know, kind of pop up about that topic at that time. Um, so I was reading some of these articles. One of them stuck out to me uh, a lot. Uh, and what stuck out to me was, the, um, was one of them was an interview, and it was asking him specifically um, uh, just kind of like what, was, like, what was life like in, as a prisoner of war? Like, how did you go through this? How did, you, how did you live day to day? What was your community that was there, even though you were in a prison cell and this and that? And I was just, I was really fascinated with, um, I was really fascinated with just how he kind of developed this community. They, they, there was apparently this, like, language that they had. They kind of, like, with tapping, they could communicate to each other. It was just phenomenal, the resilience that he had. And he said, you almost just have to kind of will yourselves to be resilient in this. And he was there for years. And, uh, and, and as I'm thinking about this, as I'm reflecting on this, you know, months later, um, not specifically in, in those articles, they weren't going that direction, uh, but as I was thinking through this idea of, like, what would you do in prison? You know, what would you, uh, what would you, what would you say? What would, you, what would your thoughts be? Um, that the idea of, um, I don't know, I just feel like sometimes I think of myself as though I am in prison, uh, if, if you get that. Is that sometimes I think that my situations are so bad, the circumstances I'm in, maybe, maybe, maybe a, a, work, uh, a work situation, or, or uh, something at home, or uh, something with finances, or just something that, you know, um, I don't know, just in the world around us, you just feel like, ah, I'm just stuck, this, this, is, this is awful, I'm in prison, I can't get out of this. And I feel like that, that, that my mind, if you're like me, my mind turns, and, and I don't have that resilience. I, I turn toward despair oftentimes. I say, I, I just can't get out of this. And I was fascinated as, as, as reading, you know, this, this, this article, uh, this interview with McCain, because I thought that he had, he had much more resilience in, in tough times. If we look here at Philippians I think it has a good word for us. I think it's a very unique, uh, a unique um, dialogue that Paul shares with us. I mean, the way he writes this, he's really inviting us in to, to almost an interview with him to say, how did you do this in prison? You were in prison. Why were you thinking this? I mean, when I read with this, with this mindset, you know, I'm coming at it with, with a bad mindset of when I'm, in, when I'm in tough spots, it feels like I'm in prison and I just get negative. And, you know, and I, and I refer to things in, in, you know, if I could just be free of these things, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't sound like it, but be free. I'm suggesting that I'm in prison. I'm suggesting that I need to be freed of, you know, of, of my responsibilities, my obligations that, that are good and right. 
but I just can't handle them. And, 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 and in Philippians here, Paul, he takes this and he goes a different direction because I come at this and I read this and some things in verse 18, if, if you look there, in verse 18, they, they're striking to me. In verse 18, he says, you know, uh, more or less, I'll paraphrase, he says, uh, yeah, I don't really care about the motives of all those guys that are preaching Jesus. And he says, only that Christ is proclaimed. And I'm thinking like, oh, this guy's got a nasty heart. I don't want him preaching the gospel. But he's like, yeah, whatever. Christ is proclaimed. You know, and, and it's just like, that is not the way I go. But then he also goes, he starts kind of off in this paragraph. You have the ESV. They make this part of the paragraph. Yes, and I will rejoice. You know, I start at that at, verse, at the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. And I say, no, that is not what you do in prison. Like, that's crazy. And so I ask this question, what is going on with this guy? How is he, what is his prison brain thinking? And I think it's a legit question for maybe a couple of reasons. I mean, the first one is just the honest one that I have. My first gut reaction is like, what's up with this guy? Like, he's super weird. Like, who says that stuff? Who acts this way? Who thinks like this? Especially in prison. But I think, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit joking aside there is, if I'm going to trust and read what Paul has to say, and it's going to mean something for my life, I need to know that he's not crazy. I need to know that he's not just this delusional guy who's chained to a wall in prison, closing his eyes and dreaming of Jesus and saying, I think I'm going to write a letter so that people, you know, Josh Casey in North Liberty, he'll get this one day and it'll rise him above the situation. That's just insane. Like, why would I do that? I'll just read anything and everything, you know, and, 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 be, and, be, and be moved back and forth, tossed back and forth by anything that anyone says. If this guy is crazy, I'm just going to throw this away. I mean, and you should too. But the second reason is maybe more noble. If he's not crazy then what do I do? <laughs> He's teaching me something. So, I asked a lot of questions. I'll answer them, and we'll get on with the sermon here. This is going to be the answer here that, that kind of directs the course of our task today. Paul is not crazy. Paul is different than me, and maybe different than you, and I'd invite you to consider whether he is, and if so, how. He's not crazy. He's just different and that he has a much higher and wider view of Christ than I do in times of difficulty. So, uh, he wants us to see this higher and wider view, but he also wants to invite us to think like him. So, he's not dictating to us. I love that he does this way. He's not dictating and say, think like this. He's saying, come, just process how I think. And he could say this confidently because he really does have the mind of Christ. His he very much has the same perspective. It's crazy, it's different, but he's a different perspective. So today, our task is to try and figure out how does this guy think. So the, the sermon title, I, if you know me, I, always have, I just have this like love-hate with sermon titles. I just hate writing them so much. So today's sermon title is How to Think Like Paul. Another, another one that I was gonna give you is uh, The Anatomy of a Sanctified Mind. I think that one's a little more clear of what it is or just put on the mind of Christ. Uh, so I went with how to think like Paul if you read your email because it was more inviting and it didn't sound stuffy, but now it's stuffy. So you're here, you can't get up, we're stuck. So uh, I'd encourage you, grab, grab a pen, grab some paper, uh, or you know, however you might take notes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw a couple things on the screen uh, and, and, and give maybe a picture for us to think about, just to assess how does Paul think. Then we're gonna go through our text and kind of see how that lines up. And then this picture, we're gonna go back to it and, and, and use that kind of as a way to check our own heart. So he's gonna say, here's how I'm thinking. Here's my structure. Let's read through this. And now, and then we'll end, you guys have homework. So that's kind of how it works. Uh, so it's really fun. It's really fun. I've done the homework already, so I checked out. I failed. I'm really bad at being a Christian. So, uh, good. Wow, I've really sold this. You guys all want to do this now. Um, 
Okay, here's the, here's the statement to help us frame up our text today. Uh, you can put that on the screen. Hope. He has hope. Hope rests on truth, longs for the good life, and interprets reality. We get this in, in, verse, uh, in verse 18. In verse 19, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope. Why does Paul have hope in prison? This is insane. It's because his hope rests on truth. It longs for the good life, and it interprets reality. If you know me, you know that I like pictures. So here's a picture of that. <gasps> there we go. Isn't that beautiful? I spent way too long on that picture. Um, way too long. Uh, so uh, hope rests on truth. So that's kind of the picture there. That's a great one. Uh, I'm going to break it apart a little bit. So if things disappear here and there, then don't worry. It's all coming back. Hope rests on truth, longs for the good life, and interprets reality in light of the good life. So hope rests on truth. He has hope. Next slide. And it rests on truth. So what is this truth? I think ultimately when we have tough times, we, we ask some of those big questions. For the sake of time here, I'm just going to go to the big questions. The big questions are, does God exist? And if so, who is he? And how is he? Is he good? Is he bad? What's going on there? Who is God is the big question. Uh, the other big question, uh, who is man? Who am I? What is, what is the point of being a human? And I guess that would be the third question. What is the point? Who is God? Who is man? What's the point? I feel like those are kind of the big questions. Now, we're not going to tackle those right now, but I do want to say that, you know, we get into those and people say, oh, you just, you know, turn off. Uh, that's for the philosophers. You don't have to be a philosopher to answer those questions. In fact, we're actually already answering those questions in one way or another, always. I think if you actually, if you kind of sit down and think about it, just your gut reaction, kind of some of those things, who is God? Is he good? Is he real? Is he not? Does he love me? Does he not? I think we've answered some of those questions. That's not super deep. Uh, who, is, who is man? What is man? That one we probably don't ask a ton. Um, maybe we do when we are in a tough situation and the other person seems evil and be like, how could you create a human being like that? Um, what's the point? I think that, that kind of moves us to, the, to, this, to this other uh, slide here, uh, the next picture, is what's the point? There's, there's a point, there's an end. See, see, Paul says to live is Christ. So if we just take out Christ, to live is, he's suggesting that there is a purpose. To live is what? There's a reason to live. Otherwise, you'd say it's like to live is to exist. To live is living. There is no point. But he puts a point there. To live is Christ. He assumes that there is something there, and he longs for this thing. This is something that, that helps Paul in these tough times and I think can help us in tough times. He longs for the good life. Uh, in the Greek, we get the, the telos, the end, the good end, the, the, the best outcome that there is. And this doesn't take philosophers, although they probably get a lot more accurate than I do. You have a good end that you want to go to, whether that's uh, retirement, rest and retirement, uh, whether that is, uh, that is leisure and vacation, whether that is not negative nine degrees on Sunday morning, uh, whether that is whatever it would be, that your kids are great and honorable and they give you a great reputation. There is something we, we're working to, and then the truth that we believe about this world and where we want to go oftentimes shapes the last point, our reality. But our reality isn't always our choice. We'd like it to be, and in that utopian world, I think in the utopian world of engagement, we think of the, the ideal, the good life of marriage, and then we get into marriage and we realize 
it may not be exactly what we imagined it would be. Uh, or parenting. We want to be parents, and then all of a sudden our kids don't sleep at night, and then we realize that wasn't part of my picture. You know, and uh, colic. There you go. That one, that is not a part of anyone's picture. Um, the, uh, we have things that we want to be a part of a reality, but the reality is something that God puts us in. So, this is kind of a crazy diagram. I think it's going to be helpful. We're going to plow through the text. Hope rests on truth. It longs for the good life, and it interprets reality in light of that good life. All right. Now we're going to be in Philippians a lot more. Verses 18, uh, 18, the end of 18, and verse 20. And I will rejoice, for I know that that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be uh, at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul, our imprisoned apostle here, he has hope, he has expectation, he has confidence of two things. One, that through prayer and the Spirit, he will be delivered. What the nature of that deliverance is, we're not quite sure. But through prayer and the Spirit, he will be delivered. And two, that Christ will be honored in both Paul's life or death. Whether he's delivered through life and he escapes or is let out of prison in his life, he's delivered that way, Christ will be honored in his body. Or if he dies, and then also he would be delivered in a different way from this life to what is better, he's going to reason through this, that Christ would also be honored that, that he's looking at, I'm in prison, this is not a reality that I really chose, but however, I could see that deliverance is the good life, and that good life is going to take me somewhere, and so what does that do? He come back, and I'm going to interpret my reality, and I'm going to say that, whether, that to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So he's, he's reshaping his reality. He can say that because he has a, a better, a lasting, a, a more founded, a, a, a real reality of what's to come that I oftentimes lose when I have that prison brain mentality of my life. I can't get out of this, and it's going to be awful. So I want to touch, there are many things we could talk about. I just want to touch on maybe one. Uh, if you have your, your ESV journals there, or you, you don't mind writing in your own Bible, maybe uh, circle that word ashamed, that I will not be at all ashamed. You see, he has hope. The opposite of hope is uh, despair. The opposite of shame is honor, and that's the context that Paul is in. He's in a Roman world that's a shame-honor culture, and I just want to highlight that a bit, not just to flex the historical, cultural side of the text here, but it's really helpful for what he's doing to help us understand how to process this life so that Christ will be glorified. See, we don't live in a historically predominant shame-honor culture, though social media is aiding us in quickly getting there, um, but for the purpose of understanding how Paul thinks This is helpful. One commentator explains, for a man to be arrested and detained in a shameful condition of loss of freedom was damaging not only to his sense of self, but to his public reputation. He's in prison, and in their context, that's shameful. What does shameful mean? Okay, uh, I'm going to borrow an analogy from culture here of maybe something that's starting to bring us to that idea of shame. It's not a one-to-one comparison. I'm only pulling this this example out to give us the feeling of shame. And I call this this example the tale of Harvey Weinstein, co-founder of Miramax, uh, decorated, awarded. He has uh, has Academy Awards or had Academy Awards and Tony Awards. Uh, Wonderful storyteller. Uh, and, and, and people loved him until a couple years ago. 
when he had allegations of sexual abuse. And very quickly, he was promptly fired from the company that he founded. He was stripped of his awards and barred from the Academy of Motion Picture. And then a movement, the Me Too movement, started. Many of the people in that movement hate him a lot. We went from honor to shame. Now, Paul is not dealing with the topics here, the allegations here. His allegation is that he just said, Jesus is Lord and Savior, not Caesar. That, that's why Paul's in prison. He just said, Jesus, not Caesar. And he didn't even say, not Caesar. He just said, Jesus is higher than not Caesar. And governments don't really like it when you say, my Savior is higher than your laws, um, even if they agree. And so there's this shame. I mean, we can actually, today, I feel like we can say, shame on you, Harvey. And you kind of feel something there. That's a little bit of that, that shame idea, that, that shame culture. Uh, that I'm not sure his, his, his name will ever be cleared on our standards. That's what, that's what Paul's experiencing here. I, I have confidence I'm not going to be shamed here. I'm not going to have that reputation. People are going to walk around and say, shame on you, Paul. And they might say it, but that's not exactly what's going to affect me. So I'll pause there before we, before we understand what he's doing here with this idea of shame. Maybe you feel that shame. Maybe you're in that spot. Maybe, maybe you hope that people won't find out those things that you may think are sins or the things that really are sins. Maybe you, you hope that people don't talk to your kids or your spouse and ask you those questions that would reveal how not awesome you are as a parent or spouse. Uh, maybe, maybe you're terrified for job reviews because you know you're not really trying so hard and you think that that's shameful. Maybe it's just something that the devil's got his hooks into you <laughs> and, he, uh, and he wants you to think that you are just as bad as, as, as the most deplorable person in any way. No one will love you. No, no one will want to be a part of community with you. No one will want to embrace you. Jesus, Jesus came to the world to save sinners, but you, you got some stuff <laughs> that, that's pretty big. That's a real feeling. I'm going to fail inevitably again. That feeling, that it, it gets there. The devil loves it. I mean, he works in that medium. He just paints that all over us. So what do we do with that? I think we can, I think we can feel that with Paul. What do we do with that shame? Well, well let's see what, sh what he does. Now we'll connect this crazy diagram with his crazy brain and see Christ is the thing that he says we, we cling to. So what does Paul do? He embraces the reality and he urges the Philippian church to think differently about their shame and about their honor. Now, I'm going to borrow some of this from, from New Testament scholar Ben Witherington uh, III. He explains it this way. He says, Paul here in this text reshapes, reinterprets their traditional understanding of shame and honor. He says, he, uh, he says the, the, the way that you are thinking about it, the way you're thinking about your value uh, of yourself, your identity, your reputation as a person is not aligned with the way of Christ. And so he invites us to think about this and realign to that of Christ. Rather than speaking negatively to how the Philippian saints uh, should get this figured out and clean it up, he does this really interesting thing. He invites us into his mind. He invites us into his thought life here. And this is like a rhetorical device that he really is using here. He's saying, come, think, reason with me on this. So what, is his, what are the two things he does to start this off? He urges that they think higher, and that they think wider. Witherington says, he tells them that ultimately there is a greater commonwealth and a higher citizenship 
than that associated with Rome. So he's in prison, he's a political dissident, and his shame is gonna come from the fact that the government said, this guy is out. So he speaks to that. He says, yeah, but my reality is I'm in prison as a political dissident. But if I raise that, what is my real kingdom? That's different. That's the kingdom of God. Now we have no attention there. We'll get to that later. But he says, we need to think higher. When I am feeling like I'm in my prison cell, I oftentimes feel that shame. I mean, even our heads do this. We look down. Ugh. I'm looking down. I'm stuck here. I'm not looking out. Uh, when I go and I ask people for advice, I just want them to validate the things that I'm railing about, right? Uh, maybe you do that too. Uh, we're not asking for help from the outside. And oftentimes when that comes, it hurts. And it feels a little bit more shameful that we didn't figure this out. But he says, lift it up. The psalmist says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? You have to, it's intentional, you have to lift it up. And he says, where does it come? Why do we have this cross up here? Because it teaches us we have to look up. Christ is that answer. He says, my king is Christ and my kingdom is the kingdom of God. I'm doing something different and I can do that whether I'm in prison or not. I can do that whether I'm in the midst of of, of a spousal argument, whether I'm in the midst of tension with a friend or a colleague, whether I'm not quite sure if my job's gonna get cut or not or if I'm gonna pass this next test. He says, no matter where I'm at, I can see a bigger perspective, that I'm here, but there's something else happening that's much bigger than me, much higher than I am. But he says, we also have to think wider. And this wider is in regards to time. Because because Paul has already set this up a couple times. He says, we have to remember that the good life is the day of Christ. The day of Christ is what we need to be working for. He will come, he will judge the world, he will restore all things. And we need to be thinking about that. The fact that I can't pay my bills this month is not my shame or honor. The fact that I can't stand before the judge and say, I truly knew you, that's that's shame and honor. There's a different shame and honor when we have that. So Witherington then, I love it, he says it so concisely, he says, Paul hopes the Philippians will have a sense of detachment from the world and an attachment to Christ and his values. Yeah, it's not that plug your your ears, close your eyes, detach from the world, I'm just gonna wait until he comes, because he says there's fruitful labor for me here. He's very much interested in what's happening here today. But it's not close your eyes and this and that. It's think of this, be so on board with the kingdom of God and its eventual consummation, its eventual full arrival, that no matter where you're at, you've got a story to tell someone, hey, Guess what? Guess what? This, this horrible thing happened in, in, in this relationship, but it shaped me because God's showing me this. Oh, yeah, something bad is happening in life. Well, God's still God. Let's work through this. Sometimes that's conversation. Sometimes that's silence. But that idea of the kingdom of God, and it's coming. It's full coming. It helps us to reinterpret our reality in light of what's to come to think higher and to think wider. Okay, now we really get into this. Verses 21 through 24. I think so much fun work happens here. Uh, Paul, just such a wise teacher here. See, he's he's already laid this out for us, uh, his foundation of his thinking. He's laid it out, his foundation, what is it? It's the reality in light of truth and the telos, the truth and the good life that comes. Paul now talks to us uh, through his thought life by way of example. So he says, come, 
think this way. If your hope really is in the coming kingdom, then let me show you how I reason through my day-to-day interactions. So I look around, I'm in prison again. Let's reason through this. And it's amazing. I mean, if you look at this, if you just circle the periods that are here in this passage, uh, I think the first like two or three verses are one sentence. The last two verses are one sentence. And then these next verses 20, uh, what is it, 21 through 24, it's like six sentences. I mean, he's just like, okay, do I do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, even the sentence structure. Like, you can just tell, like, he's just, like, torn. Like, what is going to happen here? So you can follow along here in your, in your Bibles as I read this. I'm actually going to kind of uh, read it from uh, the New Living Translation. I think that's a little bit more conversational, and, uh, and maybe I'll ham it up a little bit to help you just get the sense of what Paul is reasoning here. Verse 21, he says, For me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live... I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So, I really don't know which is better. Ah, I'm torn between the two. On the one hand, I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But, on the other hand, for your sakes, it's better that I continue with you. Hmm. It says, if I'm going to live here, I'm going to get to work. That would be really good for you. But I really kind of hope my deliverance is through death because on the other side of that is me with Christ and that seems real great for me. What do I do? And I think that's such an amazing thing. And I want to say, take that. Have the mind of Paul and run. But I, I, I got I to admit that'd be hypocritical because I tried that and it doesn't work because I don't think that way. And I think that's a, a conviction that I've had that I'd like to <laughs> extend to all of you. It's nice to read and think that we're in the same dilemma. I'm in a tough spot. Maybe that's prison. Maybe it's not. That we're in some kind of dilemma. And, and, and then Paul is serving as a flawed but wise and helpful example. However, if you're like me, you don't act, you're actually far from this line of thinking. I don't think that I could say equally, on the other hand, if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. See, I've run through this scenario. It's not a scenario that I think of all the time, but in preparation for this, for this passage, I've thought, why do I stick around? You know, like, put, put it in that spot. Again, I don't think about this often. Why should I just be here? I have a lot of good reasons in my pros and cons, but unfortunately, I don't feel like a lot of them are always Christ so that I can work more for Christ. I feel, like, uh, I feel like some of the reasons I have are more time with my wife, seeing my girls grow up, travel abroad, experience the world. I think those are kind of some of the things that I think, like, why stick around? Hmm. He's not thinking that. That is nuts. It's crazy. That's, that, that's, that's Christ in his mind. This is this structure. His version of the good life does not have leisure in it. His version does not have retirement. His version does not have uh, just a rest or, or, or fantasy sports or, 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 or the success and power and a big reputation. That's not his good life. His good life is a gigantic Jesus Christ. That is different. So when I struggle, when, when these things don't happen, when my girls are like, I want to grow old with my girls, but my girls are being demons. I don't want to grow old with them. <laughs> I want to grow old because maybe me being with my girls 
could show them a more clarified version of Christ. I could help them for more days see Christ more clearly. When good things happen, I can show them how to praise Christ for it and thank Christ for it. When things go wrong, I can let them know God is good and he loves you and this is tough. And I think that would be more noble than wanting to be around and listen to them to sing their songs and do their dances, though super cute, not exactly the good life that he has. Why do I stay in my job? Well, I'll go there. I think this is hard for me as a preacher because, because um, honestly, like a lot of my job is wrapped up into my faith. And so this is hard for me to, to separate sometimes. Like, okay, what if this is my job? What if this is here? What is going on? Because Paul is kind of reasoning through this. He's saying, okay, my, my, my vocation, my calling, my, my work here is to advance the gospel. He said that once. He's saying that again. And I find that sometimes that I have a really hard time. I've, uh, I don't know how to, how to separate those things. It's complicated. But I wonder if maybe that complication is less on the fact that it's actually complicated and more on my just bad thinking. Maybe it's more to do with my flawed over-spiritualization of pastors. The pastor has a job that requires him to be super faithful and it's kind of one of his job requirements. It literally is a job requirement. And we assess that. It's written in the Bible. And so we can kind of outsource that. Maybe I outsource that and I think, okay, so the faith is there. But I wonder maybe if we flip that, Maybe the complication that I experience in processing, what, what do I do here? What is my work here? Is maybe, maybe complicated because of an under-spiritualization of everybody else's occupation. You see, I wonder what Johnson County would look like if we all equally took up Paul's view of life. And not saying that maybe this job is more spiritual than that job if we work with people in special services or education or the hospital that we're really helping and if we're working in these other things, then not. What if, what if we were all just working? And maybe it wasn't prison. Maybe we were just in a place. Maybe my place is right here behind this pulpit. And maybe, maybe your place is right behind a desk tomorrow morning. Or, or maybe your place is on the factory line. Or maybe your place is in the operating room. Maybe if that's our place and it's not our prison, then we have all the equal work. Verse 22, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. Man, prison doesn't make any sense anymore. I, oh, yeah, I get it. I understand why prison doesn't bother you. Because prison isn't defining you. Verse 25, 26. Having wrestled uh, with this in his mind, he kind of just leaves it open for us, you know. Can I invite? Can I go there? He says, well, you know what? I might tie this up just a little bit. Yeah, I'm convinced that it's more necessary for me to remain. Like, I've just kind of looked at this. And what God wants for me, it seems likely. I don't know if he's making the decision whether or not, whether he has some cards in his back pocket to be like, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, let me out. I don't know what Paul's gonna do here, what he's saying, that he's deciding that he gets free. I'm not positive. However, it sounds like he just says to them, hey guys, I'm gonna stick around because we got more gospel advance. For him to live is Christ, and that would be my hope for you. And I feel like that can't happen unless we understand why that's good. In a couple of weeks, we're going to go into that. Why is the gospel actually the best thing? Why is it the good life for everyone? It's not just that we have better truths and so we end up with a better end goal as Christians. Because if we think it's just better, then that leaves room for other options and they can be good, but not the better one. 
We have real foundational, necessarily best truths. That's who God is. That's what the Bible is saying. We have a necessarily best gospel, necessarily best good life, and this good life is the best life for everyone we know. We'll talk about that, living in two kingdoms, and how do we wrestle with that tension, but I'm assuming that we all are kind of in that ballpark. So I want to work through this as we, as we kind of sort through how do we think through our own lives, because you're not in prison, you're here, but you're in a mental, a mental state. You're in a, a, a conversation in your head. You're in a situation or a relationship that needs it. So going through these points of hope, truth, reality, and the good life, I just kind of want to offer some questions to assess life. So we look at these truths. What are your foundational truths? I think that we really need to get into those. Who is God What is his character? What is his purpose? What is man and what is the point? Who is God, what is man, and what is the point? We need to assess those at some level. You don't have to like be, you go Aristotle on this thing. You just name some of those. Think about it a little bit. Be intentional with it. Okay, we move from there to the end. What is the good end? Is it heaven when you finally get there? Is it the advance of the gospel? What is that end for you, and how does the Bible drive that? So then we get, to the, we get to this other question, then what is your reality? And this is the whole point. How do we interpret our reality in light of the gospel? Maybe you're stuck in this world. You need to realize that. I think, what is it? The first step is admitting that you have a problem, or whatever it is. The first step of being in prison and getting released is to acknowledge, hey, I'm stuck in prison and I'm not thinking outside of this. Are you stuck in your own head? Are you repeating the same problems in your head? Are you not looking for solutions? Are you only looking for validation? Or are you looking for some help? I need to do that. This soul cutter class that we're doing is fantastic. It's helping us to come alongside each other and help each other out of prison, so to speak. Help each other out of these and provide that help in a way that is so lasting and good and foundational. Maybe you're stuck on your phone. Maybe you just kind of tune it out and you stick on your phone. That's worse for the shame honor culture. So maybe put that one away and get into dialogue with others and ask for help and listen. Uh, What is your reality? Rightly view this moment as a life where you are are cultivating the gospel, that that you are doing something. Paul, for him, his reality is the advance of the gospel into it. And he works to that at every end. He describes this moment of tension and joy in light of what is high and wide. I think that would be one. What is higher than what you're thinking? What is wider? How does it all interpret it? So those are a couple questions. I know those aren't the the, the greatest or the most profound questions there. I hope that this is a start. What are these things for you? Hope, truth, reality, the good life. How do you interpret your present reality, take it through, understand it in light of the gospel, and move to something that is higher and wider and respond for the advance of Christ? You see, his conclusion then is, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He says, I'm not positive who's making the decision here, but it seems like I have a task of advancing the kingdom. And, and it seems like it needs to advance some more. And so, 
eh, my best guess, I'm probably going to be around advancing the kingdom a little bit more. I think that's so wonderful. That's not how I would have thought of that. I would have probably staged some escape or just turned into myself. Don't do that. You can think through some of these things, and it can be helpful. I hope that it helps to take a step forward. But it's not something we can do on our own. We need each other in community. I think it's one of the beautiful things we do with confession each week is that we explain to each other we all know that we're sinners. So that should make it easier to be in community with each other, within a community group, uh, within the friends, um, and with the pastors, the elders here. Please come. If you have things, Wayne, please come. We want to help, and I think the best help can be Christ, as Paul explains. So his big urge to us is he says, you're not dead yet. You're still alive. There's still fruitful work to do. The world needs Christ. The gospel must advance. So, as long as you are alive, get to work advancing the gospel in any situation, whether good or bad. Let's pray.